Well, that last song is uh, based on, in part, the passage that we are going to be studying this morning in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, and we have once again, I keep feel like I'm saying this in the last few Sundays, the greatest passage, not only in the book of Romans, but in the whole New Testament. And uh, this passage that we're going to begin looking at this morning is arguably the greatest passage in the book of Romans. They're all so good, right? But uh, I think this might be the best one so far. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Follow along in your Bibles as I read. Paul asks the question, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? who will bring a charge against God's elect. God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are, we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, we all should shout a hearty amen to that text. What amazing truth. And Father, while we're probably most of us familiar with this text, I pray that the, the, the familiarity that we have with it would not somehow take away the, the wonder and awe that we should all have this morning as we consider these amazing realities. And so would your spirit um, illuminate our minds and help us to grasp the depth of what Paul is getting at here, that we would just be overwhelmed with, with, with joy and, and, and gratitude for our salvation, and that we would be convinced that we cannot lose our salvation, that our salvation is secure in Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I assume by now many of you have heard the sad and shocking news that well-known author and former pastor Joshua Harris recently announced that he's not only abandoning his wife, but he's also abandoning his faith in Christ. This past week, he was seen marching in a gay pride parade in Vancouver, British Columbia, where he now resides, and was taking selfies with the other participants. Hopefully, our first reaction to such heartbreaking headlines is a humble, reflective, but for the grace of God, there go I. 
and then immediately followed by prayers on his behalf, that God would graciously and mercifully grant him repentance and lead him back to the truth. Well, we know that there are many warnings in Scripture about falling away from the faith, along with plenty of examples of those who denied the faith and embraced a worldly lifestyle. In fact, in Acts 20, Paul warned the elders who oversaw the church in Ephesus to be on guard for themselves because he knew that some of them would stray from the truth and become Paul's teachers. Now, these are the elders. These are the spiritual leaders of the church. And as you may know, Paul later had to go back to Ephesus and confront these apostates, and he assigned Timothy the task of appointing new elders and helping this church get back on track after the mayhem that had been caused and the carnage that had been uh, caused by these false teachers. And he exhorted Timothy in his letter, first, his first letter, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, to fight the good fight, keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Later, in his second letter to Timothy, he mentioned that those men who had gone astray from the truth upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, he adds, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. Amen? See, Joshua Harris is not the first, nor will he be the last professing Christian and spiritual leader to walk away from the truth. But whenever anyone falls away from the faith and becomes an apostate, especially when they were associated with what we would call the conservative evangelical movement and appeared sincerely committed to Christ and well-grounded in the Word and greatly used by God to help so many others come to know Christ and grow in Christ, hey, let's be honest, it, it naturally upsets the faith of some people. And it causes some to, to question their own faith and forces them to reevaluate what they really believe. And it causes others to, to doubt whether they're really saved and, or makes them fearful that, well, maybe I could lose my salvation. And it's things like this that beg the question, how do we know for sure that we will avoid shipwrecking our faith and spend eternity in heaven? How do we know that for sure? Well, our text today couldn't come at a better time. Since it's one of the clearest passages in the Bible on the doctrine of eternal security, or what we also call the perseverance of the saints, or better referred to, I think, as the preservation of the saints. In other words, God is sovereignly preserving those that he has saved. And simply defined, eternal security means that everyone who is truly born again cannot and will not lose their salvation. This is the once saved, always saved uh, colloquialism you may be familiar with. And this essential doctrine is based on multiple New Testament passages. I read one last week in John chapter 6, verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, this is Jesus, that all that he gave, he has given me, or excuse me, all that he has given me, I lose nothing. 
but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Uh, Jesus also said this in John chapter 10, uh, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And then I love what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verse 23, as he wrapped up his first letter to the church in Thessalonica, he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. And then probably a passage that you're uh, all familiar with, Jude Verses 24 and 25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen? Now to be fair, there are a number of passages that make it seem like a person can lose their salvation. You have some parables, like the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 13. You've got, excuse me, in Matthew 25. You've got the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. You've got Galatians 5.4 that talks about falling away from grace or falling from grace. You've got, of course, Hebrews chapter 6, talking about after having tasted uh, the Lord that you uh, fall away from him and have no way of returning and Second Peter chapter two talks about false teachers who, who uh, uh, forsake the God who bought them, and um, so these verses are are, are problematic. And and uh, there's also verses that make it seem like a person has to work hard and exert effort in order to keep their salvation. Paul talked about in First Corinthians nine that he buffeted his body uh, and made it his slave, so that after he preached to others, he would not himself be what disqualified, right? Uh, Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, Colossians chapter 1, we, we covered this uh, a few years back when we went through, uh, studied the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, um, talking about how we've been reconciled uh, to the Lord in order to present us before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Well, we don't have time to this morning to look in depth at each one of these texts. And if you're curious about any of these texts, um, please talk to me about them and we can kind of sit down and walk through uh, why I don't think any of these passages uh, refer to uh, us losing our salvation. Um, but really what they're doing, I think, is they're referring to something else. For example, falling away from grace into legalism. That was the context of Galatians chapter, uh, Galatians chapter 5. Uh, or, or they were teaching that not everyone who professes faith in Christ is truly saved. 
which is one of the most sobering truths in the Bible, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who calls me or says to me, what, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. They say, Lord, hey, we did all this stuff in your name. Look at us. And he says, what, depart from me, I never knew you. What does that mean? Well, there are many, many who, th- who really, I mean, truly, sincerely think that they're Christians and claim to be Christians and even look and sound like Christians, but who in the end renounce or defect from the Christian faith. And the Bible clearly teaches that those who are truly saved will never forsake the faith. And by forsaking the faith, I mean walking away and never coming back. But they will continue in the faith until they die and go to heaven. Now, they may stumble and fall along the way and commit grievous sins and go through spiritual slumps as well, but by God's grace, they will eventually repent, return, or be revived, and persevere in the faith until the end. And if they don't, that's proof that they were never truly, what? Saved to begin with. That's what we find in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not, they all are not of us. Now, I know this sounds very blunt this morning as a beginning, but I don't think we should try to blunt the sharp edges of verses like these, but let them serve their purpose to spur us on, those of us who are professing Christians, to to spur us on in our pursuit of Christ and our growth in godliness, and also to warn us not to be presumptuous, but to examine the genuineness of our profession profession of faith in Christ. We're told that on a couple of occasions, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, uh, to examine your faith, 2 Peter 1, 10, uh, be Make, make your calling and election sure. And so we're, we're commanded to do this in Scripture. Well, in the midst of our grieving over someone who has fallen away from the faith, and by the way, the jury's still out on that. You can't automatically conclude, well, he must have not been a Christian. Well, we'll see, right? Time will tell. And God may work a great work in his life. And Yet in the midst of our grieving over someone who's fallen away from the faith, and in light of these sobering warning passages that I've been alluding to in in Scripture, Romans 8 provides a breath of fresh air. And and, and we just want to just take this in this morning. Because if you've been with us from the beginning of our study in the book of Romans, it's, it's like we've been on an expedition together and we've been climbing this this, this, this steep mountain range of the doctrine of salvation or justification by faith alone in, in the first eight chapters. And, and now we've finally reached the summit. And if Romans could be likened to the Himalayas, then Romans 8 is Mount Everest. And verses 31 through 39 are the peak of Mount Everest. And so we have, we've arrived And what does a climber do when they reach the top of the mountain? You're like, they collapse. (laughs) 
Well, they rejoice. They exult. They celebrate. And that's exactly what Paul was doing in these verses. He was celebrating our security in Christ and the certainty of our salvation. This is a hymn, if you will, of security. This is a song of triumph. It's the the pinnacle or the culmination of everything that Paul had been explaining up to this point, and particularly what he just got done explaining about God's sovereignty and salvation. In the previous two verses, you'll remember that two weeks ago, we talked about how Paul traced God's grand design of salvation from eternity past to eternity future by laying out five sequential steps that God takes to save sinners. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Again, we mentioned that this has been historically referred to as the golden chain of salvation, which is made up of five unbreakable links. And it's not just inconceivable, but it's impossible for a person who has been foreknown by God and predestined by God and called by God and justified by God to not also to be glorified by God. And so, again, Paul's teaching us here that the initiation, the execution, And the completion of our salvation from start to finish depends solely and entirely on God, not us. And so if we didn't do anything to gain our salvation, then why would we think we could do anything to lose our salvation? And again, Paul's overall purpose here in chapter 8 in emphasizing God's sovereignty here in salvation was to provide us comfort and hope in the midst of the pain and the suffering we experience living in a sin-cursed world and living in a sin-cursed body where beloved spiritual leaders defect from the faith. And it just makes us long for the return of Christ. When we'll finally be glorified and everything will be restored to its original state of perfection. And so, essentially, Paul wanted believers to know that our future is secure. That no matter what happens to us, God will be faithful to complete his work of salvation in our lives. In other words, Paul wanted us to rest assured that we would make it home to heaven safe and sound. You familiar with that expression, safe and sound? We, we use that typically to talk about the end of a dangerous trip, right? We text someone or we call someone and say, hey, just want you to know we made it home safe and sound. In other words, without injury or, or without any accidents. And I think this is a great expression applied to the Christian life because the Christian life is an arduous perilous journey filled with a myriad of spiritual dangers in the form of difficult trials and tempting pitfalls and satanic schemes and snares and nagging doubts and worldly distractions. I mean, uh, just read Pilgrim's Progress, right, by John Bunyan, and what a great analogy of just 
the, 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 uh, the perilous journey that all of us are on from the city of destruction to the celestial city, heaven. And, and there's, there's a reason why God knew that we would need to be constantly reassured that by his grace, we will make it home to heaven safe and sound. I love John Newton's hymn in uh, Amazing Grace, that one line, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It's a great line. And so God's grace, sovereign grace in salvation that Paul has been describing here in the first eight chapters of this letter to the Christians in Rome is truly amazing. It is truly amazing. And, and, and it's the basis of our eternal security. And, 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 and so these final nine verses here, verses 31 through 39, are, are the grand crescendo, if you will, in which Paul just spews out this series of, 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 of rhetorical questions that, that burst before our eyes like, uh, like the climactic finale of a fireworks show. We, we probably most of us just experienced one of those back on July, in July, right? July 4th, um, somewhere, somehow. And, and so Paul invites us to sit back and be wowed to ooh and to awe at the triumphant, reassuring implications of our great salvation. And I know that our study in Romans has been very theological. Um, and, and that's the nature of the book. But I appreciate what one commentator said. He said, in this context, he says, we are not dealing here with mere theology. As Paul wrote, his pen gave evidence that he was caught up in an experience of profound worship and spiritual adoration. And so we should get caught up with Paul and what he's saying here. John Stott, one of my favorite commentators, I find, find myself quoting from him every Every week, it seems, um, he just always has something good to say. But he, he mentioned that Paul followed up his five undeniable affirmations, this, you know, the fact that we were um, foreknown and predestined and, and, and called and justified and glorified. He follows up these five undeniable affirmations with five unanswerable questions. And he says this about these questions. He says, Paul hurls them into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. He challenges anybody and everybody in heaven, earth, or hell to answer them and to deny the truth which they contained, but there is no answer. And essentially what Paul is saying that is that because of what God has done and is doing for us in and through Jesus Christ, it is absolutely impossible for us to be opposed by anyone, to be deprived of anything, to be accused by anyone or condemned for anything or separated by anyone or anything from his love, from God's love. You can generally divide this text into two parts. Verses 31 through 34, 
no condemnation. Verses 35 to 39, no separation. But for our time together, I want us to see in these verses four reassuring realities based on the past substitutionary and present intercessory work of Christ that remove our doubts and relieve our fears that we might not make it home to heaven safe and sound. You may be doubting that. You may be fearful of that. Paul says, I don't want you to fear. I don't want you to have any doubts. And so he gives us these four reassuring realities based on the past substitutionary and present intercessory work of Christ. What are these realities? Number one, we cannot be defeated by anyone. Number two, we cannot be deprived of anything. Number three, we cannot be denounced by anyone. And fourthly, we cannot be detached from God's love by anyone or anything. Well, let's begin and let's see how far we can get this morning. We cannot be defeated by anyone. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? So this is really the the general overarching question that Paul asks, and he's already used this expression three other times in the letter. It's just kind of his way of of, uh, just saying, okay, so based on what I've just said, what, what are we to say of these things? Chapter 6, verse 1, verse 15, chapter 7, verse 7, he uses that same expression, but he was, I think, generally referring, when he says these things, what then shall we say to these things? He was generally referring to everything he had written thus far, but more specifically, he's referring to what he just got done writing about in verses 28 through 30, that great section about how all things work together for our good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, and then he explains the purpose of God, which is to conform us to the image of his son, and that's why he ultimately saved us. It's not about us, it's about Christ. And so the natural response, what then shall we say to these things? Well, how about amen? <laughs> how about hallelujah? How about, how about uh, stunned silence? Jaw drop? I'm speechless. And so he asks this general question, but then he gets specific. He says, if God is for us, who is against us? And since this is not a mere possibility, if perchance God is for us, no, this is a reality. So I think it's better translated, since God is for us or because God is for us, who is against us? Paul's point is this, that God not only sovereignly provides us salvation, but he also omnipotently protects and preserves our salvation. So this is where the character of God gets all put on display in our salvation from the very beginning to the very end and everywhere in between. And God's sovereignty and salvation is put on display at the beginning. And what's being put on display now? His omnipotence. His power to keep us saved, if you will. See, no one is stronger or greater than God, and therefore no one can thwart or destroy his plans for us or rob us of our salvation. Now, that doesn't mean that the enemies of God and the enemies of our soul won't attempt to derail our faith. 
I think the world and the, the flesh and the devil are all formidable foes who are constantly opposing God and us and trying to derail our faith, get us off track, lead us astray. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about that we fight not against flesh and blood, right, but against the principalities and the powers of the air. 1 Peter 5.8, Satan is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. James 1 talks about each of us are tempted and drawn away by our own lusts. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world, right? The, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful fight of life. These are all the things that the world throws at us to derail our faith. But what Paul is saying is if God is for us, or since God is for us, who is against us? None of these opponents will ever be able to defeat us. By, by the grace and the power of God, we will ultimately prevail and triumph over them. Another great hymn that we all know and love is a, one by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Remember that? For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Sounds pretty bad so far. Sounds like we're goners. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? In other words, we can't stand up against Satan on our own. We don't have the wisdom or the strength to do that. And then Luther says this, we're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? If you're wondering who I'm talking about, who is it? Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. In other words, he will win the battle. He has to win the battle. That's how the story ends. As one preacher last week at this Worship God conference we went to said, it's, it's the end, it's the ultimate storyline. The dragon is slain, the girl is rescued, and they live happily ever after. Guess what? Satan is the dragon that's going to be slain. We're the girl. We're the bride of Christ that he's come to rescue, and we will live happily ever after. And so though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. I love that. And so no one can defeat us or thwart God's plan for us. Chrysostom, who was one of the early fathers of the church, said this. He said, quote, Yet those that be against us, so far are they from thwarting us at all, they even without their will, they become to us the cause of crowns. They, they think they're hurting us and bringing us down. We're actually giving us opportunity to, to earn some crowns in heaven. 
and procurers of countless blessings in that God's wisdom turneth their plots into our salvation and glory. See how really no one is against us. Why? Because God causes all things to what? Work together for good to those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. And so number one, we cannot be defeated by anyone. Second, reassuring reality, we cannot be deprived of anything. We cannot be deprived of anything. Notice verse 32. He did he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Again, Paul is arguing here from the greater to the lesser. We've already seen this back in chapter 5. If you remember, uh, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So again, Paul is back to reasoning here that if God reconciled us to himself while we were his hated enemies, why would he do anything less for us now that we're his beloved children? And that's how we've been described here in chapter 8. If you remember verses 14 through 17, that we are the sons of God and that we cry out to God, Abba, Father, Daddy, and we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And so Paul's simply saying, listen, if, if God has already given up his greatest treasure, his most prized possession, his beloved son, so that we could be saved, certainly he will give us everything else necessary to bring that salvation to completion. If, if he didn't, it'd be like a, a wealthy father who spared no expense to buy his son a, a brand new Bugatti, most expensive car you can buy it and then the car just sat there in the garage because he wasn't willing or able to pay for it to be registered and insured or or he wasn't willing or able to pay for the gas and so he left his son stranded on the side of the road there's no way God would ever leave us stranded after all he's already sacrificed to save us I think it's very likely that Paul had in mind as he was penning verse 32, um, Genesis 22, where we find the story of Abraham and Isaac, which clearly foreshadowed the, the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. And again, you don't need to necessarily turn there because you are familiar with that story, I'm sure, Genesis chapter 22, but uh, as when, when God said, hey, I want you to offer your son Isaac as a sacrifice, Abraham, Abraham surely didn't understand, he, but he agreed, he was willing to do that because God told him to do that, even though this was the son of promise, uh, that, that, that God had said it's through him that, 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 that your seed will uh, multiply and you'll become a great nation. And so God's, and Abraham's like, okay, God, you gave me the son, said this is the guy, and now you're telling me to kill him. I, I'm just gonna have to believe that I guess you're gonna raise him back from the dead. And so he went for it. And uh, you remember he raised the knife, right? And was ready to plunge it into his son's chest and as an offering to the Lord. And God said, no, stop. 
Verse 12, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And as you know, he provided a ram over in the thicket to take his place, right? And they sacrificed the ram in its place. And the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I mean, you just can't, you can't not read that, not think of the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his, what? Only son. In fact, the LXX, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, used the same word in verses 12 and 16 here as Paul used back in Romans 8, verse 32. This whole idea of not sparing or not withholding your son. And so even though Abraham was willing to not withhold his son, God directed him to spare Isaac and kill and offer that ram in its place, whereas God did not spare his son, but killed and offered him as a sacrifice for sin. Listen, friends, he already gave us his best. Why wouldn't he give us the rest? 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so we cannot be deprived of anything. We can't be defeated by anyone. Thirdly, we cannot be denounced by anyone. We cannot be denounced by anyone. Now, the setting of these next two verses is clearly a courtroom because legal language dominates these two verses. Just listen, verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. What is Paul saying here? When he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? No no one, absolutely no one, is able to press charges against us as his chosen ones. Why? Because our crimes have already been paid for and covered by the blood of Christ. Colossians 2, verse 13, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of degrees against us, which was hostile towards us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What's called double jeopardy. You're probably familiar with that term. According to the Fifth Amendment in our U.S. Constitution, it's prohibited for anyone to be prosecuted or punished twice for the same crime after a valid acquittal or conviction. Well, guess what? That's us. There's been a valid acquittal because of what Christ did for us on the cross. God is the one who, was, who acquitted us. It says God is the one who justifies. God himself is the judge in the courtroom and he's already declared us righteous or innocent based on our faith alone in Christ alone for our salvation. And so when we got saved, we were acquitted of all of our sins, past, present, and future even. 
so we can no longer be accused of any sin or sentenced to hell for any sin. That was how this whole chapter got going. Chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no, what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ. And it's all about Christ, by the way. Notice again, who is it? Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus. It's always, Paul's always bringing it back to Christ, right? Christ Jesus is he who died. It's rather he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. A few verses previous, you may remember, Paul explained the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Verses 26 and 27, and this was new to most of us as we were going through this. It was like, wow, that's pretty cool. I never thought about, I always knew Jesus was interceding for me, but I never really thought about it that the Holy Spirit's interceding as well. And so we have an intercessor in our heart and we have an intercessor in heaven. So we've got dual intercessors. How did Jesus become our intercessor? Well, he died and he rose again. And he returned to heaven where he sat at God's right hand where he now serves as our intercessor, our mediator, or our advocate. 1 John 2, 1 says, hey, when you sin, Christian, you have an advocate with the Father. So if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now this idea of Christ dying and rising from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the Father and interceding for us. This has got the language of the Old Testament uh, high priest all over it. And, and if you're familiar with the nation of Israel and what you know, they experienced back in the Old Testament, the, old te- or the, the, excuse me, the high priest served as the intermediary between God and the nation of Israel. And the, the main job of the high priest was to sacrifice and present the offerings before the Lord to atone for the sins of the people. Interesting fun fact here is there are no chairs in the tabernacle or the temple. No, no place for these high priests to sit down and catch their breath, take a rest. Why? Because their job was never done. They just had to sacrifice one lamb after another, after one ram after another, after one goat after sacrifice, after sacrifice, after sacrifice. They were just busy sacrificing and presenting these offerings because of the Lord to atone for the sins of the people. But as our great high priest, Jesus came to earth and offered himself once and for all to atone for our sins. And he served as the final sacrifice that would ever have to be made for sin. And his resurrection was proof that God had accepted and was satisfied by his death on the cross as payment for the sins of all those who would repent and believe. And so when he ascended back to heaven, he sat down. How cool is that? He sat down at the right hand of the Father because his job was done. Hebrews chapter 7, turn with me there. You, you, you need to see this. This is so good. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. 
talking about the priesthood of Christ, Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And then look it over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Where he acts now as our intermediary between us and God. And we know in the context of Hebrews Christ invites us to come before God's throne to find grace and mercy whenever we're facing trials or temptations. Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 4. We have an empathetic high priest. He, he gets it. He's been here. He's done that, except for sin. But not only is Christ there to help us when we're tempted and tried, but he's also there to help when we are taunted by Satan or other people or even our own conscience. Because let's face it, sometimes our, our, our conscience accuses us or other people accuse us or Satan accuses us. And essentially, they're all saying the same thing is you call yourself a Christian and you just said that, you just did that. And by the way, it's not like these accusations are not valid. Because even as believers, we we still can do and say some really sinful stuff. But that's when Christ defends us. He defends his followers before the Father and shows him the scars on his hands and his feet and says, Dad, just want to remind you, I got these when I died on the cross and endured your wrath for that sinful thought that that guy just had or that sinful word that that gal just had or that sinful act. And again, since Christ has already been punished for our crimes, none of the accusations can stick. They're overruled, thrown out of court. Again, it's a double jeopardy law. No way we can be punished twice for the same sin. If Christ died in our place, then that's it. The question is, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross in your place as the only way you can be made right with God and go to heaven someday? If you're not, if you're kind of making it on your own, well, guess what? Double jeopardy doesn't apply for you. You're going to have to pay for your own sins. 
That's why we run to Christ and the cross and claim his death in our place. The prophet Isaiah spoke about how God vindicates his people. Isaiah 50, verse 8 and 9, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? This is not just a New Testament concept. This is an Old Testament concept. And I'm sure you're familiar with Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, what marvelous words. May we never allow our familiarity with this text dull its luster or lessen its power to inspire us to worship you. Because when this world full of sinners needed to be saved, you did not spare your own son. But you gave him up to a shameful death on the cross, a death that we deserve to die. And so, Lord, as we meditate and apply these spiritual realities to our hearts and our minds in the coming hours and, and, and week ahead, Lord, would you use them to remove our doubts and relieve our fears and to reassure us that it's not about us keeping ourselves saved because if none of us could save ourselves, how would we even think that we could keep ourselves saved? And so, we know it's ultimately your sovereign, omnipotent hand that provides us salvation and preserves our salvation. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ and that we can sing with great joy and hope this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.